6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Dr. Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Dr. Missler continues his teaching on the book of 1 Kings, chapters 5 through 8. So Solomon built the house and finished it, and he built the walls of the house within with boards of cedar, both the floor of the house and the walls of the ceiling, and he covered them on the inside with wood and covered the floor of the house with planks of fir, so that it's cedar on the walls, it's pine on the floor, in effect. And he built 20 cubits on the sides of the house, both floor and walls, with boards of cedar, and even built them for it within even for the oracle, even for the most holy place. The word oracle is to beer in the Hebrew. It's really an, it's a term for the holy of what we would call the holy of holies, the innermost room of the temple, of course. Now, Solomon makes reference to the promise that was given to David. That promise was that his throne would be established forever. And God would do that even if Solomon doesn't obey him which indeed he ultimately doesn't, but because of David, God's commitment to David, that's going to endure beyond the misdeeds of Solomon. Solomon's ultimate disobedience will cause the division of the kingdom. And that will be our subject in the, the second half of the first book of Kings. And the oracle he prepared in the that's again the Holy of Holies, prepared uh, in the house within to set there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. And the oracle in the forepart was 20 cubits in length, and 20 cubits in breadth, and 20 cubits in height. In other words, it's a cube. It's a 30-foot cube. In the tabernacle, it was a 15-foot cube. So everything here is twice as big, and obviously far more elegant. And he overlaid it with pure gold. So he covered the altar, which was of cedar. And so Solomon overlaid the house within with pure gold, and he made a partition by the chains of gold before the oracle, and he overlaid it with gold. And the whole house he overlaid with gold, until he had finished all the house, Also the whole altar that was by the oracle he overlaid with gold. And within the oracle he made two cherubims of olive tree, in other words of olive wood, each ten cubits high. These are super angels that are ten cubits high, fifteen feet high. Five cubits was the one wing of the cherub, and five cubits the other wing of the cherub. And from the uttermost part of the one wing unto the uttermost part of the other were ten cubits. So we're... We're talking a huge, huge olive wood carving of two angels, presumably with their wings touching, if you will, above them, that he's going to cover them with gold also. The other cherub was ten cubits. Both the cherubims were of one measure and one size. The height of one cherub was ten cubits, and so it was of the other cherub. And he set the cherubims. That's a funny expression you'll find in King James. Cherubim is plural. You don't have to put an S on it. Cherub is singular. Cherubim is plural. But in any case... Uh, he set the cherubim uh, within the inner house, and they stretched forth the wings of the cherubim so that the wing of the one touched the one wall, and the wing of the other cherub touched the other wall, and their wings touched one another in the midst of the house. And he overlaid the cherubims with gold. He carved all the walls of the house round about with carved figures of cherubim, palm trees, open flowers within and without. And the floor of the house he overlaid with gold within and without. 
That's interesting, because gold is a very soft metal. But uh, that's anyway. And, and for the entering of the or, uh, of the oracle, he made a doors of an olive tree. The lintel and side posts were a fifth part of the wall. Two doors were of olive tree, and he carved them upon them carvings of cherubim and palm trees and open flowers, and overlaid them with gold. Spread gold upon the cherubim and upon the palm trees. He also made he for the door of the temple posts of olive tree a fourth part of a wall. And the two doors were a fir tree, and two leaves of one door were folding, and the two leaves of the other door were folding. And he carved thereon cherubim and palm trees and open flowers and covered them with gold fitted with carved work and built the inner court with three rows of hewn stone and a row of cedar beams. I might mention that uh, the olive doors that were leading from the holy place may have been framed on five-sided jam, some, some scholars feel. Some commentators believe they were sliding doors. There's all kinds of rabbinical debate about that. Uh, about the details. The other ones are four-sided jams and a bifold, apparently. Now, the inner court was an open plaza surrounding the temple. We saw that sketched in the plan view. And there's an outer court that is not mentioned here, but is mentioned in Second Chronicle parallel passage. When we go to, I didn't try to parallel Chronicles each time. We're going to go through Chronicles following Kings, so we can pick that up there. But in any case, uh, outer court is a slighter, lower elevation than the inner courtyard. The, this inner courtyard is sometimes called the courtyard of the priests, and it's separated from the outer court by a, the little wall, this three, wall with three courses of dressed stone and so forth, and then one course of cedar beams. Now, the size of the inner court's not given, but uh, if the dimensions of the temple are proportional to those of the tabernacle courtyard, we could assume the inner courtyard is probably 150 feet wide and about 400 feet long, nominally like a football field. In the fourth year was the foundation of the house of the Lord laid in the month of Ziph, and the eleventh year, in the month of Bull, which is the eighth month, was the house finished throughout all the parts thereof, and according to the fashion of it, so was he seven years in building it. More precisely, seven and a half years if you really count the months, but in any case, seven years building the temple. He's going to spend 13 years on his own house. So now we're in chapter 7, and we're talking about Solomon's own house. But Solomon was building his own house 13 years, and he finished all his house. And he built also the house of the forest of Lebanon. This is a strange phrase, the house of the forest of Lebanon. Sometimes some Bibles would have the palace of the forest of Lebanon. It's not in Lebanon. It's, it's a label that apparently gets put to it because of the extensive use of the fabled cedars of Lebanon in its construction. The length thereof was 100 cubits, and the breadth thereof 50 cubits. The height thereof, 30 cubits, upon four rows of cedar pillars and with cedar beams upon the pillars. It was covered with cedar above, upon the beams that lay on 45 pillars, 15 in a row. You know, that's quite a house, by the way. A hundred cubits would be 150 feet long, right? So it's, well, half the, that's what, it's half the length of the football field, and it's, uh, and it's, uh, breadth is 50 cubits, so it's, uh, it's a sizable place. Height, 30 cubits. 45 feet high, and so on. And it was covered with cedar above, upon the beams, and lay upon 45 pillars, 15 in a row. And there were windows in three rows. Light was against the light in three ranks, and all the doors and posts were square with the windows, and the light was against light in three ranks. And he made a porch of pillars. The length thereof was 50 cubits, and the breadth thereof 30 cubits. And the porch was before them, and the other pillars and the thick beam were before them. And he made the porch for the throne. Now he's shifting back for the throne, where he might judge even the porch of judgment, and it was covered with cedar from one side of the floor to the other. And his house where he dwelt had another court within the porch, which was 
of uh, the like work. And Solomon made also a house for Pharaoh's daughter, whom he had taken to wife, like unto this porch. All these were of costly stones, according to the measures of hewn stones, sawed with saws, within and without, even from the foundation unto the coping, and so on the outside to the great court. Now, there are a couple of comments about all of this. Um, Palestinian limestone can be cut with a saw when it's fresh, but it hardens when exposed to the elements. Strange material. All the structures were of stone except of the roofs, and they rested on stone foundations. And by the way, these stones were 12 to 15 feet in length. These are big stones. And the great court roundabout was with three rows of hewn stones and a row of cedar beams, both for the inner court of the house of the Lord and for the porch of the house. King Solomon sent and fetched Hiram out of Tyre. Now don't confuse. This is If you're reading this casually, you can stumble here. This is not the king of Tyre. This is an artisan. Some Bibles will spell it H-U-R-A-M just to help you recognize it's not not to confuse him with Hiram, the king of Tyre. Uh, this is a, uh, this is an artisan, a, a bronze uh, metalwork specialist. He was a widow's son of the tribe of Naphtali, and he was the fa- uh, his father was a man of Tyre, a worker in brass. So he is half Jewish and half half Sidonian, and he was filled with uh, wisdom and understanding and cunning to work all works. And when it says brass, it's really bronze. It's an alloy of copper. But in any case, he came to King Solomon and wrought all his work. And he cast two pillars of brass of 18 cubits high apiece. And a line of 12 cubits did compass either about them. So there are 12 cubits in circumference and 18 cubits high. Call it what? 27 feet, roughly? And he made two uh, chapiters of molten brass to set on the tops of the pillars. The height of one chapiter was five cubits, and the height of the other chapiter was five cubits. Now, there's a lot of discussion about exactly how high they are because there's a slight different way of describing it in the book of Chronicles. And rather than take you through all that and waste our time on that, just be aware of the fact that um, there is the possibility that they were 52 feet high. Scholars argue about that because of the, the way it's expressed here, the way it's expressed in Chronicles is slightly different. What is stranger about these two pillars is they don't hold up anything. They're strictly decorative. They're gigantic bronze pillars, and they have names, and they have apparently profound mystical significance. They're there just, in a sense, for ornamentation. And the nets of checker work and reeds of chain work for the chapters which were upon the top of the pillars, seven for one chapter and seven for the other chapter. He made the pillars in two rows around about them upon one network to cover the chapters that were upon the top with pomegranates. Chapters is the piece that's on top of the pillar. It's a round decorative piece with, with chains and pomegranates on it. The chapters were upon the top of the pillars were of lily work in the porch, four cubits, and the chapters Upon the two pillars had pomegranates, also above, over and against the belly, which was by the network, <clears throat> and the pomegranates were 200 in rows roundabout upon the other chapter. And he set up the pillars in the porch of the temple, and he set up the right pillar, and he called the name thereof Yachin, and he set up the left pillar and called the name thereof Boaz. Now that's interesting. These, these decorative pillars have names. The word Yachin, that's the south pillar here, uh, means uh, by his counsel, or in his counsel, his, in Yahweh's counsel. The name of the north pillar, Boaz, in him is strength, or by his strength. 
So they stood, in a sense, for God's security and strength available to the nation as they obeyed him. Uh, I'll touch on this when we get near the end, but the, there is the very real possibility that the architecture of the temple is far more profound theologically than is generally recognized. And I'll come to that uh, before we're through. So some of these things uh, are there architecturally as part of the temple as such, but there's also some strange possibilities, mystical possibilities, of what the temple is intended to convey, and I'll come back to that in a minute. And upon the top of the pillars was lily work, and so was the work of the pillars finished. And he made a molten sea. There's that strange term. It's a bronze wash basin, a huge one. Ten cubits from one brim to the other. So it's ten cubits, 15 feet in diameter, okay? And it was round all about, and its height was five cubits. Now it's seven and a half feet deep. It's 15 feet wide, seven and a half feet deep, and a line of 30 cubits did compass it round about. Does that bother anybody? If you're paying attention, it should bother you. And it's a, a very sore point with me, because I can remember when I was in high school, I had a good friend that who happened to be the son of a Unitarian minister. And he really knew his Bible. We both knew the Bible pretty well, and we were into that in those days. But he had, of course, a very different view, very modernistic, liberal view of the Scripture. And we used to get in some interesting discussions. And he used to point at me, he said, Chuck, you think the Bible's inerrant? I said, absolutely. I mean, I stood strong, because I'd been well taught, you know, the Bible's inerrant. He said, what about 1 Kings 7.23? Well, it says that this thing is 10 cubits in diameter and is 30 cubits in circumference. Every, any, any school kid knows that, that circumference is not three times the diameter. It's an error. It's a mathematical error. I didn't have an answer for him. I mean, I didn't argue. I didn't know. I had no way to go, but I, you know, didn't shake my faith. I figured there's, you know, it's proximate. That's close enough. I mean, whatever. Of course, the long, more I learned about the Bible, I learned that the word approximate is not in God's vocabulary. If it fits, it fits right. So it wasn't until many, many years later, a rabbi helped me with this. He says, by the way, see, you take this molten sea of First Kings 7.23. It's 10 cubits in diameter. But can the circumference be 30 cubits? Of course not. Because we know the circumference is not three times the diameter. We know that the diameter, I mean the circumference, is is uh, is uh, pi times the diameter. And the pi is what? 3.14159265358979. How many knew that? We all did. We've all known, we all know. We don't use those numbers. We use 22 sevenths typically, or 3 and a seventh is an approximation. It's good enough for most uses, right? Or some engineers will say it's 3.159. That's about as far you can go. It's gone, it's, it's gone to a thousand decimal places, by the way. The Japanese just recently published an analysis, but that's neither here nor there. Anyway, the, uh, 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 the question, what do we do with this? Well, the problem is it's translation. See, in the English, 1 Kings 7.23 says, He made a bolt and sea, ten cubits from one brim to the other, drowned all about, and its height was five cubits, the line was thirty cubits, it comes round about. Now, in the Hebrew, there's the Masoretes did a very interesting thing. When they came across a word that was misspelled, they didn't correct it. They didn't correct it. They noted it, and that was called a kathiv. See, the word the, the word for circumference there is, is, is misspelled. In the margin, they would put the correct spelling, the kiri. There's a, there's a vav connective, I'll skip that, but let's, the point is, it's misspelled. There's an extra he that doesn't belong there. You don't change the pronunciation. You know, if you say Jonah, J-O-N-A, or Jonah, J-O-N-A-H, you can't tell the difference. There is a, there's a little more breath there, but you can. So that's what the hey is. Well, you see, Hebrew and Greek are unique in that every letter in the, in the alphabet 
of both Hebrew and Greek, has a numerical value. And these numerical values uh, can serve an interesting purpose besides just representing numbers. They can also represent ways of, is what we call in the computer industry, a check code. If you take a page and add up all the, the value of all the numbers, you get a number. If you copy that page, you can add up those and see if the number better agree or you've got an error. It's a, it's a form of parity check, so to speak. Well, in any case, it also means that every Hebrew word has, a, if every letter has a value, every Hebrew word has a value. And it's bizarre to get into the Hebrew and study this. The word for pregnancy adds up to 271. Isn't that interesting? You girls know what I'm talking about. The word for year adds up to 355. Not 365, they were in a lunar year. And on it goes. The numbers are very interesting. Well, in any case, there's going to be... The word for circumference has a kaf and a vav, and the way it's misspelled, there's a hey added. So let's, we had a little spelling lesson. Rabbi explained to me that the kathiv, the way it's spelled, is a kaf, a vav, and a hey in that passage. The kiri, the correct way, is a kaf and a vav. Well, the, the kaf is a hundred, the vav is a six, and the hey is a five. So the way it should be spelled should add up to 106. But the way it was spelled in that passage with the extra hey, it adds up to 111. Well, what do you do with that? Well, when you apply that correction, 10 times 3 times 111th, 106th, you get to 31.415094339629 cubits, which means in a distance of about 46 feet, there's an error of less than 15 thousandths of an inch because of the spelling. On this, I rest my case. Yes, the Bible's inerrant in the original. If we have problems, it's in, it's in our in inferences or it's in our uh, uh, translations. So I think that's kind of fun. Anyway, 1 Kings 7.24. And under the brim of it roundabout, there were knops. Knops compassing it. That's like a gourd, if you will. Ten in a cubit compassing a sea roundabout. The knops were ca- uh, cast in two rows where when it was cast. It stood upon twelve oxen. Three look, Obviously, this is just sculptured. On uh, twelve oxen, three looking toward the north, three to- looking toward the west, three looking toward the south, three looking toward the east, three, and the, and, and the sea was set up above upon them, and all their hinder parts were inward. That's a. This is again an artist sketch that uh, my wife had commissioned for her book on, on private worship. I've, I've uh, borrowed it with her permission, to the, just to give you a feeling for the thing. It was at a hand breadth thick, and the brim thereof was wrought like the brim of a cup. With flowers of lilies, it contained 2,000 baths, and he made 10. Let's see if I can. I should have that translated for you here. Uh, that would be about, uh, see, contained 2,000 baths. That's about 11,500 gallons of, of water. Now, the labor held 3,000 baths, but they contained 2,000 baths. One's a capacity. It wasn't filled all the way up. That's, people make a big thing. The Chronicle says 3,000. This says 2,000. This says what was in it. The other one tells what it could hold. There's no difference. You just didn't fill it full. Anybody's tried to fill a propane tank knows what I'm talking about. Okay. They made ten bases of brass, four cubits was the length of one base, four cubits the breadth thereof, three cubits the height of it. The work of brass uh, bases was on this manner. They had uh, borders, and borders were between the ledges, and the borders that were between the ledges were lions, oxen, and cherubim. And uh, upon the ledges there was a base above, and beneath the lions and oxen were certain additions made of thin work, and every base had four brazen wheels, plates of brass, and four corners thereof. And undersetters and the labor were undersetters molten. That means you made of bronze. And this, at the side of every edition, 
and the mouth of it within the chapter and above was a cubit, but the mouth thereof was round after the work of the base, a cubit and a half, and also upon the mouth of it were gravings upon their borders, four square, not round, and under the borders were four wheels, and the axle trees of the wheels were joined to the base, and the way the, the height of a wheel was a cubit and a half. The work of the wheels was like the work of a chariot wheel. Their axle trees and their knaves and their fellows and their spokes were all molten. Everything inside the temple proper was gold. Everything outside, including the pillars outside, is bronze. Bronze was the material that could handle heat. It speaks of sin or the judgment of sin. The gold speaks of deity, and so there's a very key demarcation in terms of what's inside and what's outside. The bridge between the two is the porch. There were four undersetters to the four corners of one base, and the undersetters thereof were the very base itself. And on the top of the base there was a round compass, half a cubit high, and on the top of the base there were ledges thereof, and the borders thereof were the same. And on the plates of the ledges thereof and on the borders thereof he graved cherubim, lions, and palm trees according to the proportion of every one, and the additions round about. And after this manner he made ten bases. All of them had one casting, one measure, one size. So these are the lavers and so forth. And then they made ten lavers of brass. One laver contained forty baths, and every laver was four cubits, and every one of the ten bases one laver. And he put five bases on the right side of the house and five on the left side of the house, and he set the sea on the right side of the house eastward over and against the south. And Hiram made the lavers and the shovels and the basins, so Hiram made an end of doing all the work that he made King Solomon for the house of the Lord. And the two pillars, the two bowls of the chapters that were on top of the two pillars, and the two networks to cover the two bowls of the chapters, which were upon the top of the pillars, and 400 pomegranates for the two networks, even two rows of pomegranates for one network to cover the two bowls of the chapters that were upon the pillars, and the ten bases, and the ten lavers on the bases, and one sea, and twelve oxen on the sea, and the pots, and the shovels, and the basins, and all the vessels which Hiram made to King Solomon for the house of the Lord were of bright brass, in the plain of Jordan did the king cast them in the clay ground between Sukkoth and Zarthon. And Solomon left all the vessels unweighed because they were exceeding many. Neither was the weight of brass found out. So, so much brass they didn't even bother to weigh it. And Solomon made all the vessels that pertained unto the house of the Lord, the altar of gold, the table of gold, whereupon the showbread was, the candlestick, actually says the lampstands of gold, five on the right side, five on the left, before the oracle or the holy holies and the flowers and the lamps and the tongues of gold, and the bowls and the snuffers and the basins and the spoons and the censers of pure gold, the hinges of gold, both for the doors of the inner house, the most holy place, and the doors of the house, to wit, the temple. So ended all the work that King Solomon made for the house of the Lord. And Solomon brought in the things which David his father had dedicated, even the silver and the gold and the vessels did he put among the treasures of the house of the Lord. Whew. Okay. Y'all have a clear sketch of that? You can just draw it on a scratch pad? Okay, now we're going to dedicate the temple. So Solomon assembled the elders of Israel, all the heads of the tribes, the chief of the fathers of the children of Israel, unto the king Solomon in, in Jerusalem, that they might bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is in Zion. And all the men of Israel assembled themselves unto king Solomon at the feast in the month of Ethanim, which is the seventh month. Okay, Ethanim is an earlier name for what we call today Tishri, okay? The Feast of Tabernacles we're dealing with here, actually. So all the elders of Israel came, and the priests took up the ark, and they brought up the ark of the Lord and the tabernacle of congregation, all the holy vessels that were in the tabernacle, even those that did the priests and the Levites bring up. Notice they're doing it right. Solomon learned his lesson, or I should say he learned the lesson that David, the, the, the tragedy that occurred when David 
did it improperly. He's doing it right. David's bitter experience provided a lesson here. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel were assembled unto him, were with him before the ark, sacrificing sheep and oxen that could not be told nor numbered for multitude. And the priests brought in the ark of the covenant of the Lord unto his place, unto the oracle of the house of the Lord, unto the most holy place, even under the wings of the cherubim. And for the cherubim spread forth, these big wooden ones up there, and the cherubim spread forth their two wings over the place of the ark, and the cherubim covered the ark and the staves thereof above. And they drew up the staves that the ends of the staves were seen out in the holy place before the oracle, and they were not seen without, And the, for they are there unto this day, which tells you this was written before the division of the kingdom, or uh, Babylonian captivity. Strange thing, you always see the Ark of the Covenant as if the poles that are supporting it go longitudinally long. If this is the Ark from left to right here, the poles would be parallel to the long sides. No, they went the other way. They went across the short ends, which actually makes it more stable to carry, by the way. But the other thing is, while it's sitting there behind the veil, the poles would push the curtain so you could tell outside it was there. Follow me? That's what they're trying to say here. And that's commonly misunderstood. You often see almost all the artists that render the Ark of the Covenant render it instinctively would say it, it, it runs longitudinally. No, it actually runs across the short end, the, the poles. And uh, that's what the rabbis have maintained. That's what the scripture also supports. There was nothing in the Ark save the two tables of stone, which Moses put there at Oreb when the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. Now this bears out... There's a problem here because in the New Testament, Hebrews 9, 6, it tells us that there was a, the a, a pot of manna and the uh, Aaron's rod that budded. And that apparently was there in the days of Moses, but along by the time you get to Solomon, they, they seem to have disappeared. They were lost somehow through the, uh, the time. The table of stone are in the, there to remind Israel that the nation was still under the blessings and responsibilities of the Mosaic Covenant. But the pot of manna and the air of dry that budded seems to have mysteriously disappeared. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Dr. Chuck Nussler, teaching through the book of 1 Kings. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Quinnity Institute, visit quinnityinstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.